Welcome to the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 36, coming at you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland, California. And I've been waiting two years to enter the 36th chamber, and here we are. So grateful you're tuning in. Episode 36, or the 36th Chamber of the Upful Life Podcast, is brought to you by Proper Canna Naturals. That's propercannanaturals.com. Premium quality, locally and organically grown, solvent-free hemp extract, and a CGMP certified manufacturing process. Colorado's finest full-spectrum and THC-free hemp products. It's made with 100% USDA-certified organic-grown hemp extract, non-psychoactive, that means it does not intoxicate nor inebriate, whole plant industrial hemp solvent-free, third-party lab tested for potency, quality, and efficiency proper cannanaturals.com that's p r o p e r c a n n a n a t u r a l s.com shout out justin brothers and the team proper cannanaturals topical products edible tinctures and even things for the pets check them out proper cannanaturals.com fort collins colorado also want to shout out our good friends at Urban Music, The Healing of the Nations, a fresh new online magazine that seeks to explore the storied history between the worlds of sound art, spirituality, and raised vibration. Celebrating the people, the songs, and the stories behind the music, marijuana, and movements. Urbanmusic.com herb and music the healing of the nations we're going to let it ride out with Marillo's Missy Elliott flip 
and then I will take off on the 36th chamber on the Up For Life podcast. thank everyone for the reviews on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and iTunes because it really goes a long way in sending the algorithms in our direction and bringing new listeners to the Upful Life podcast. Appreciate everyone who's done so thus far. Uh, and I want to encourage anyone else, should they have the time or be so inclined, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and iTunes, and you can reach me direct with feedback, recommendations, constructive criticism, or what have you at b.getz at upfullife.com. That's b.getz at upfullife, U-P-F-U-L-L-I-F-E dot com. Appreciate hearing from everyone out there. You give me, you give me the sweetest Yes, indeedy. We're back on the Up for Life podcast. And wanted to just let everyone know that these last few months have been uh, so empowering and inspiring to produce this show and have these conversations and dialogues and narratives, communiques uh, with the Kim Dawson's and Chris Littlefield's, Dave from Dopey Podcast, etc. Tough topics, tough times. Look out the window. Babylon is burning. It's just beyond words. And this podcast is not really going to touch on uh, the violence or intense hatred and division. We will. As a matter of fact, on the next episode, we're going to get right into all that. But on this one, we are going to talk to two individuals who have uniquely black American stories to tell. And we're also going to be celebrating Black Rock City and Burning Man. And the front end of this episode is certainly going to focus on uh, the pilgrimage to the Black Rock Desert in Nevada that we are missing, just like everything else. And we put things into perspective. Uh, Burning Man is a very privileged experience. Um, It's certainly very white. And that's something that uh, many people are aiming to change and evolve And we're going to get into that and keep with our theme of having the discussions about race and just what we're living through as a culture and also how it pertains to our music and festival diasporas. And that's really what my mission is with this sort of mini-series inside of the Up For Life podcast. And I didn't want to deviate from the established themes of conversations and dialogues uh, that we've been experiencing and enjoying and have become inspired and enlightened by in recent months. 
as well as I wanted to put uh, just a little bit of love and focus and inspiration into celebrating the beautiful and often misunderstood and kaleidoscopic wonder that is Burning Man and Black Rock City. So we're going to touch on that with our first guest, who I will introduce momentarily after this Sade drum and bass John wraps up. And we're going to love on Burning Man a little bit and talk about an interesting development movement that's been taking place over the past few years. You know what's wrong if another Molly Reeves. You know what's wrong if another Molly Reeves. Episode 36 of the Upful Life Podcast welcomes the Black Burner Project's Aaron Douglas. Now, I was going to try to put together my typical introduction, but frankly, I've never met Erin. I don't know her personally, and when I went to check out uh, her credentials and uh, background, I came upon uh, her own words, which, you know, does far supreme a job of describing who she is and what she's about with regard to Black Burner Project. So in lieu of my normal, rambling, idiosyncratic introductions with all kinds of personal references, I am instead going to read her bio so y'all can get better acquainted with whom we are about to speak. Erin Douglas of the Black Burner Project is a travel and lifestyle photojournalist and three-time burner. Now, when the chance to attend Burning Man was presented to her, she didn't hesitate. But that didn't mean she wasn't nervous. The nerves of camping for the first time and possibly being the only person of color she would see out there for a week. Although she met other people of color, Erin saw the desperate need to document other burners of color and share their stories to create a space where the misconception that Burning Man was just for, quote, white hippies, unquote, could be squashed. She wanted a a place where people of color could be seen because you definitely couldn't find inspiration on the internet. Erin hoped her images would inspire other people to give Burning Man a shot, give truth to what Burning Man was really about, a platform with a wealth of easy information for people to access traveling art shows for the talented artists that go to Burning Man experiences and community you can check out uh, blackburnerproject.com something that i was very inspired by some time ago was her open letter dear white burners you can find that on the website blackburnerproject.com dear white burners trying to explain what it is like being black in america to the extent where you truly understand is like trying to explain Burning Man to a non-burner, realizing no matter how detailed you get, they'll never get it, but even harder. The difference is, 
Someone can always go to Burning Man, but you can never step into my brown skin for the true experience. In fact, you'd probably never want to. This type of experience you most likely could not handle. And that's from Erin Douglas of the Black Burner Project. She is our guest on the 36th Chamber of the Upful Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and that was the Marley Marl remix of En Vogue's Hold On. Hello. Hi, Erin. Hi, how are you? I'm good. This is Brian with the Upful Life podcast. Hi, Brian. Nice to meet you. Likewise. I want to thank you for making some time this morning or morning for me. Uh, <laughs> I know it's busy times, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to speak with you today. Sure. Uh, just for our listeners who are maybe less familiar uh, with you or your story, um, first, where am I speaking to you from and maybe a little bit about yourself that you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, so I'm on the East Coast in Maryland uh, right now. Um, I am a travel photographer and travel and lifestyle photographer and have been to um, Burning Man for this three three years in a row from 2017, and this would have been my, my fourth year. Gotcha. Right on. Yeah, I really was... Uh interested in the black burner project uh when i was made aware of it before last year's burning man mm -hmm. and uh really impressed and moved by the work and the conversations and the dialogue and the awareness um that you're bringing to light um i wanted to just thank you uh you made a post um in early june really kind of floored me um was in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, where you asked uh, sort of rhetorically to the community, what have you done this week to better understand our pain in the system that has held black people down for so long? Have you pledged to continue this work for the weeks, months, and years going forward? Uh, have you asked yourself why you've been okay with this system for so long and why? And I have to tell you that that really impacted me in a profound way. I'm not a person of color, but uh, very tuned into uh, you know, the culture and contributions that black people have made across the board. And I've really dedicated my own work as a journalist to uh, responding to what you asked specifically. Um, so I just wanted you to know that in addition to this conversation has really pro propelled me into some areas that are uncomfortable, but necessary and certainly uh, awakening and inspiring. So thank you for, you know, just opening that dialogue at a time when I know it was so difficult to. Uh, yeah, and thank you for being receptive and for being open to, you know, listening and hearing and reading and, um, you know, I guess stepping within to reevaluate some things within yourself. And that's kind of what's needed by everyone is just the the openness to or willingness to kind of step back and truly listen and then be willing to not put it on everyone else and to take ownership of like what you can do. Um, you know, what, what small to big things you can do. And, and, and I think a little bit of work, you know, going forward every day or, or incorporating that into your life, it will make it grand, you know, Indeed, indeed, and and really doing the work 
in our own lives and the conversations in our families and friendships and our day-to-day, mm-hmm. you know, interactions are, is really what I'm learning the most from. And I also find the most difficult because those are really intense personal relationships you have with your parents or siblings or whatever. And, and it, it's, it puts to test your conviction. And, right. and that's what I've been learning through this. And part of the reason I wanted to speak with you, hear directly from you as in, in terms of your intention. But maybe we could just touch on a little bit of your background in terms of Burning Man, because I read the interview you did with uh, the Burning Man org, and it was really just kind of struck by the sort of randomness of you arriving on the playa. So uh, as little or as much you want to tell about, you know, how you ended up with that first ticket to Burning Man and maybe your, your snap judgments or initial impressions of your virgin year on the playa. Yeah, so I learned about Burning Man through a really close friend of mine who um, went for the first time, and I don't remember her, I remember her telling me about it, but I don't remember her really, you know, hankering down and like, you know, really overly hammering it into my head that I had to go, but I she shared enough where I knew it was something special, but I didn't, but I also knew it was different. <laughs> and so, um, but nothing really, really kind of sparked anything in me to, to take some initiative to, to go. Um, I knew that she would be going for as long as she would, you know, was able to going forward. And then, uh, in 2017, her and her uh, husband gifted me, or fiance at the time, gifted me a ticket and for my birthday. And I said, okay, <laughs> I don't even, I don't see myself having, you know, declined it. I know, like, you know, her gifts are always thoughtful and intentional and have meaning behind it, even if I don't know why she was giving it to me. So I trusted her. Um, she gave me little ability to say no because, you know, she had a tent for me and a blow up bed for me and a bike for me. And I just need to get my flight and get my food and things. Um, and, and, and even covered my, uh, camp dues. So she pretty much left it, you know, it's hard to say, to say no. And so that's why, that's why I went. I really don't think, um, I would have put in the initiative to look for a ticket and all that just because she said she really wanted me to go. I might have tried a little, but it might not have been that year. Um, and I don't remember. I, I know I did a little bit of research, but I probably didn't do enough. I just trusted her and what she told me I needed to do to prepare. I was very aware that there it wasn't diverse, so I was a little bit nervous about that, and I wasn't sure about the elements, like the, the heat and the, the cold. I hate being cold. So I was nervous um, just about how I was going to feel, um, and it was even though I am a traveler and I travel often um, solo, it was something about what Burning Man seemed to be that I just wasn't sure about. Um, and it wasn't until I was able to talk to another person of color that kind of gave me some relief. And I recognized that those feelings, but they were new. Um, as a solo traveler, I've 
often been the only person of color or black woman that I see that my entire trip sometimes. So that wasn't new to me. But I think all the elements of Burning Man, the camping, the desert, the, you know, misconceptions that you don't, you know, that you learn, you don't learn until you get there. were all just part of those nerves. And so um, I, it was an overwhelming experience my first year. I really wasn't sure how I felt. <laughs> um, I didn't know what I thought really um, until afterwards. And um but it was beautiful and it was unique and it was just hard for me to really put into words what these emotions or feelings about this different. I mean, it was just a different world out there. Um, and so I wasn't sure if I was going to go back, but I knew part of at least part of me was sure that if I had gone back, I would, you know, do this differently and do that differently. Um, and also some months in when I, when the idea for the project came about, that's kind of that was kind of another reason um, that I said if if all these things come together, I'll go back and do the project. Right on. Um, that's you know it's interesting to hear that you didn't really study or research it in advance, nor did I, and I also trusted some dear friends who you know. <laughs> just basically said, this place is for you. And it, it took me a long time to get there. You know, I was 35 in 2013 when I finally made it to the play. And I've been going to festivals all over the place, you know, since the late 90s. And I would agree, it is another world and it really cracks you open. And mm -hmm. I, I was reading your interview where you talked about your first year. You didn't really surrender to the flow. You didn't do a whole lot of solo exploring and, and more or less trusted in the group. Um, and then I didn't know that it, that you kind of were uh, thinking of the Black Burner Project so soon after after merely your first year. Um, mm -hmm. So you basically set an intention that said, if the stars align and I can make it back to the playa, like I'm going to do something with this idea. Um, how did you bring that to fruition? You know, now you're going for another year, and and you realize, you know, there's a lot more you want to do with it. How did you take it from you know your mind's eye? actually out there to BlackRock? I mean, I don't, it was honestly really different. I, I, I give it all to Burning Man to give me the courage. It was something about, you know, this idea and this feeling within that just really wouldn't leave me alone. But I knew that I wanted it to be, I knew that I wanted it to be bigger than just photos I posted on my website and my Instagram. I just really didn't know what. Um, and so I figured I have to submit a proposal if that's the case. And if I get a ticket, those things align, then I'll go. I really didn't have a plan otherwise. Um, and so, you know, going out there and waving down people and telling them what I was doing. And, you know, I was just running around looking for people to take photos of. It wasn't as hard. My my first year, it was a lot more people of color that I noticed than my, um, I mean, my second year than, um, than I noticed my first year. Um, and even coming back from that second year, which was the first year of the project, I had no clue what, Im you know, the images, if I was going to be happy with them. I really didn't know if I was going to do anything. Um, but I had set it up where, you know, if things worked out, meaning 
the content was good and stuff that I, you know, was, was good to be able to share it and post it or use it in ways that were far beyond my personal website. And then, um, but, uh, you know, the idea really just came from recognizing those feelings I had prior to going, um, recognizing the feeling I had when I finally talked to a person who looked like me, um, and how easy that was, but then also how hard that was to even find someone. And then after my first year and just posting photos, not necessarily of people of color, but me being the person of color that someone could reach out to and ask questions to, um, all these people were asking me questions and just telling me that they, you know, wouldn't hadn't gone to Burning Man simply because they didn't think people looked like them there or they didn't think we were, um, you know, welcome there. So it was all the same. So it was kind of just like this feeling of like, I don't even know what I experienced. I just know it was something special and it it's kind of upsetting that people are missing out on, on it because they don't think that it's a space for them and there's nothing out there making them feel like it is. Um, and so that first year was just kind of like a trial and error and, you know, it, it got received really well. And then, you know, going into the second year, which was 2019 of the project, I went in the same way, you know, went into going to Burning Man the same way when it came to photographing. I knew that I had gotten some support and people knew about it, but I really didn't expect um, the number of of the amount of attention and how much people knew about it and, and the, um, I guess how much it meant to people. I wasn't ex expecting that. So I really didn't have to go and search for people. People came to my camp, um, every day looking for me and those became my subjects. And so pretty much all the, all the photos were taken in the same spot because I, I didn't even get a chance to kind of go out and, it's explore and find people as much as the first year. Um, and the, uh, you know, I continued the idea of the word of mouth kind of um, marketing when it came to the group photo and, you know, realized pretty quickly that it was going to be significantly larger. I still wasn't expecting the group photo to be as large as it was the second year, but it, it it was obvious because people were um, approaching me about it, not knowing who I was, approaching me and telling me I had to go to this group photo on Friday that they had heard about. And, um, you know, so it, it was a, I, honestly, I have no clue how it went from the first year to the second one in terms of how many people it touched, but it was a, a significant difference in my experience as someone who was, um, curating it all and, and um, capturing everything and someone who created it, I, it was just such a different, um, you know, different energy that I had to expel and use every day. Um, and it was, it was beautiful. It was a lot and overwhelming, but it was beautiful. I hope that answered the question. <laughs> oh, and how, yeah, definitely. Thank you for, you know, the detailed explanation and, you know, I only know it from Instagram and sort of word of mouth. So it was just interesting to hear how it how it came to fruition from your idea. And yeah, I, I can remember uh, 
in between 2018 and 2019 and the run up to last year. Um, it was just kind of exchanged in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, one of the flippant remarks people like to say when they deride Burning Man is it's the whitest shit ever. And it's a true story, you know, and it's an accurate depiction. But I think that there was such uh, just joy and inspiration and excitement behind the fact that people of color were not only coming to the playa, but, you know, celebrating themselves there and announcing that, you know, this is for us and we're inviting our people. You know, it was just really something that white folks like myself could get excited about. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we're actually evolving and moving towards a more diverse Burning Man and maybe some of the brilliant ideas and artwork and connectivity can, you know, extrapolate into other cultural areas that it hasn't affected yet. And, and I'm really inspired by your ability to, to, you know, plug into the beauty and enormity and the sort of humbling humanity of Burning Man and then bring it and depict it and portray it with such, you know, pride and honor and grace. And I'm looking at the iconic don't shoot photo, which, you know, has pretty much gone viral uh, for a while now. Did you realize uh, the sheer power of that image when you took it or did it take it going viral and sort of becoming the, uh, you know, iconic, you know, depiction of the Black Burner Project for you to realize that you had really grabbed some magic? Well, I, I don't know if I realized it completely in the moment, but I knew that, you know, in the, I, I had just literally arrived to the playa that night. Um, it was on my second year and went straight to Duck Pond that was next door for a party. It was nighttime and saw him in the, I saw him in the vest and, you know, I had a decision where I could have just admired it and said nothing. I didn't have my camera, so I just told him that I wanted to take a photo of him in the, in the vest, and he told me to write down his address and a time on his jeans, and so I did, and he showed up the next day, and I just thought it was, like, such a significant piece that he created, especially because he used the symbol of the, of the man. Yeah. Um, and one that I wouldn't have even thought of, you know, and I, I don't remember what happened that year, but I'm sure we were, um, I'm sure there was someone else around that time that we were mourning in terms of their death and trying to get, you know, justice for as well. And so I just thought it was so, it was just beautiful that he, that he saw that. And, and, um, he said it was like a really great, um, talking piece that people would ask him about and people had different perspectives but it always opened up you know conversation um a space for conversation around it all and so you know i i knew it but then i also didn't know because so much has transpired and and since then and we're you know we're saying the same things but you know it's just so it's like such an emblem of what we've been talking about. And so I think especially this year when people are paying attention a little bit more, um, it just became bigger. Indeed. And, and there's so, so much depth to the, just the concept of the, the don't shoot with the man, uh, mm -hmm. his, you know, because the arms up, you know, as we right. know, on the burn night, that is the total surrender moment. 
where mm-hmm. where just before he burns and and just the that the parallels there to you know the total surrender and and what people of color have been living through um, right is just it's so deep and you know even talking to you about it now gives me chills and i just wanted to just again say thank you and, and honor that it's it's art it's culture it is conversation it is pain and it's also inspiration hope all in this image and i think it's just a real testament to the like whatever vision you had even if it was sort of a a random thought a thought that you wanted to do this project to have it evolve into something that so salient in this moment in time uh is just is just amazing so i i am always interested in in just hearing about these type of endeavors not just with burning man but in the arts community and music communities so um we hear you for sure and and see what you're doing and uh, you know in some capacity whatever's appropriate whatever feels right you know i want to be a part of it you know i'm not black but i am a burner and i certainly believe in what um we're working towards here and that this brings me to kind of a harder question that i wanted to ask you which is um were we to have a burning man in 2020 uh where do you see the black burner project's role now that the conversation is no longer you know in the in the on the back burner to say it is it is in the forefront of all of our lives. I mean, I woke up before we spoke. I've been reading the news about Wisconsin and Jacob Blake. Obviously, there's been a ton of talk about Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And I mean, I went to a march here in Oakland. I was just looking at this uh, painting of all the faces of all the people of color who have been murdered in recent years. And it was like 40. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, you know, my heart aches and I cannot pretend to imagine what it feels like to wake up as a person of color in this country, but I do want to hear, you know, how, in essence, the Black Burner Project may have, uh, you know, what role you would have taken or, or what voice you would have used in this moment of time, and is there a role for, for white folks who want to be allies to be a part of the Black Burner Project moving forward? I mean, for sure, I think, you know, the it's I think it's significant that everything happened um, this year because it's not just about, you know, Burning Man being canceled, but everything that happened prior um, that kind of goes along with it, you know, because if everything else happened, but Burning Man still was still on, like, it just wouldn't be the same. And so I think, um, you know, even me having me writing that piece wouldn't have happened, obviously, if the murder of George Floyd didn't have happen. Um, and so it's, it's a really significant time for the community, this community that's so, so large and so vast. And so, you know, it's, we are such intellects and creatives in so many different ways it doesn't mean you're an artist by you know sculptures you're just creative people you know and we have the ability to i mean we go out there we build and we create something that is completely opposite of the world that we usually exist in and then we survive in these in this world too and figure it out and you know we have the ability to really i feel i believe to make some major impact but i think it took and it 
takes things like these situations that are happening now to kind of awaken people, even if you're in the Burning Man community, um, to truly understand what's going on and to not just wait to Burning Man to happen to, you know, kind of leave everything at the, the gate and come in and not have to worry about things, but to take that whole world we create and bring it out here and to how do you, how do you, how do you do that better in the default world? And I think doing that better is understanding what your community, all people in your community have to go through on a day to day um, and how you can support that. And if that means you recognizing that you haven't been an ally and you haven't been supportive and you haven't been empathetic and understanding of what, you know, black and brown people go through, um, that means you know, taking on the work. And I think if you can take on the immense work and challenges that that Burning Man, that you face when going to Burning Man, then you can do it, you can do it in regular life. Um, and so I, I hope that, you know, the, the project, you know, has and will continue to kind of be that space that um, makes people aware of the stories of, of black and brown and BIPOC people and um, and challenges the community to to start doing better, the community inc and including the organization. And hopefully the organization will recognize the work and knowing that it needs to do better in terms of who's on it's who's in leadership, um, who's who's um, and and that they're supporting the community. And so, you know, I'm still trying to figure out, you know, where to take the project because it's evolved, you know, a lot since, uh, you know, the idea of it in the first year and especially over the past few months. Yeah. Um, and so I definitely want to make sure I'm doing it right and I'm being, um, you know, if I'm going to be someone of a voice that I'm, I'm, I'm doing things clearly and making sure I'm making the, the right impact um, and speaking up for the people who are in the community to make sure that they are, they're feeling um, a difference, you know, um, and that we're holding fire to the organization to, to um, to put action behind words, and I think they're slowly doing that. Um, but I think it, it took us speaking out for them to really, really understand, um, you know, that they needed to do better. Uh, so I'm, I hope to continue to do that and to be able to create more than just a group photo out there and to bring more awareness to our, our culture and to our and people and to just make it a space where people feel comfortable to reach out to us and to anyone and to, and to collaborate to make sure that we're all doing what we need to do to be welcoming. It's one thing to say Burning Man is a welcoming space as someone who's not a person of color just because you feel it versus truly understanding what someone is feeling on the outside looking in when they're not a person of color. That's um, it. That's it right there. Yeah.
in terms yeah. of, I, I didn't mean to jump in on you, but that is, oh, no. you nailed it with the, you know, it's different and we can't, it's radical, radically inclusive uh, doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. Right. And it's, and it's, I get it, you know, because it's so different and you want to, and you're speaking from your heart because you know how you are out there. So it's easy to just say it's for everyone. It's, it is welcoming. And I'm like, yes, but you know, why is it that so many people aren't coming because, because of one specific thing? Um, so the, the idea is to listen and to recognize the feelings. And it doesn't mean that it's not welcoming in a different way. Than out than what we normally feel, but you have to get them there, and you have to do things that are going to encourage a more diverse demographic to to get out there and, and create um, access. And you know, um, it's it's you know, it's a lot of work, but it's very simple too. So I'm hoping that you know things just like the stories and awareness and other creative projects that I have ideas for will will really make a difference in driving diversity there and um, challenging, you know, the community who are not people of color to, um, to, to do work too every day. <laughs> yeah, every day. Exactly. And I appreciate you pointing it out and saying that. And I do have a couple questions left, but I know we only have a couple minutes, so I'm just going to mm -hmm. finish with uh, this one. You had mentioned about the stories of, you know, helping people tell their stories. Were you actually doing that in real time on your, you know, stories from the dust Instagram series, you know, the black burner project had really been, you know, your voice, your images and beautiful and, and salient and, and certainly inspirational and educational, but you've given other persons of color, the opportunity and the microphone, if you will, to tell their stories from the dust, which I've, you know, caught up on a couple and, We'll continue to view them. Uh, just curious how that came about. And to finish up our conversation, what have you learned from the experiences of other persons of color through your stories from the Dust series or just your project in general? Well, I mean, I um, initially would just, you know, the people, everyone who I took a photo of, I would contact after and interview them so that I could have some context to the to the person and the photo that I could share. Um, and I've had a few, you know, photo exhibits, and I usually sh um, also blow up some of their quotes, which always just like you know gives gives new perspectives to people who are looking at it. So I I always love to to people are just you know I just love to know the story behind the person I'm taking a photo of. And then when it came to COVID. I just was, you know, thinking of something different to do uh, and decided to start doing IG Lives. And I'm not, you know, usually in front of the camera. So it was a challenge for me to, like, convince myself. But, you know, it, I thought it's another step to hopefully, you know, sharing more stories, changing the perspectives of people who haven't been, um and, you know, being able to talk to more people outside of who I have taken photographs to just open the door to, to you know, more information. And I think a lot of um, apprehension has to do with, one, awareness, but also just being misinformed. Like the, the Internet, even even with the 
white hippies or the hip or the the white people in the black and platforms are still like not really like horrible depictions of what Burning Man is. And so like the I what Burning Man is on the internet is so far from yes what we are experiencing. And and then on top of that, you're not there's no you know black stories being told anywhere. Um, black or other people of color. So, you know, I just decided to reach out to people and see if they'd be open to doing IG lives and just, and decided to make that a weekly thing. And it's been, it's been great. I, I love talking to people about their experience. It, it always usually could last longer than an hour. Um, everyone has something different to, to say. Um, and it's truly you know, based off of the, the messages and the comments, it's truly been, you know, eye-opening to people when it comes to, one, gathering just basic information about surviving and preparing, but just understanding the different reasons people go, recognizing that each person has their own, in, you know, personality and into different things. So it's not for one type of person. Um which is a big misconception that, you know, it's so much more than, you know, sex and drugs. That's barely what anybody talks about, you know, and, and that there's, there's real depth to the experiences that people are having. And so it, I think it just makes people more curious. So it just, it just reinforms the power of like storytelling and, you know, the power of, you know, listening to, your inner, you know, your inner self when it comes to an idea. And it's something that I believe, you know, really strongly in. And so even when it becomes really hard, you know, the, or, you know, I, I'm realizing how much time I'm putting into it. I know that like this, this project means a lot to me. And um, I've always wanted to inspire and encourage people through my work to do things like travel, um, which has always been important to me. And it just happens, so happens to be that this is niched down to something specific like Burning Man. Um, so I think that's what I've, I've learned is, you know, the, the fact that, you know, I could have stare cleared clear of this idea because it was scary and not done it. But I, uh, I also think that experiencing Burning Man gave me the, the courage to do so when you see such amazing things being built before, you know, um, it just gives you a different bolt of confidence of what's possible. Um, and then I just, I just saw the need to, to, um, to see myself and others to see themselves. So I think that's it. Like the, the power of storytelling, the power of listening to, you know, these ideas, even if you don't know what to do, um, or how it's going to be done and like trusting yourself and, um, yeah. And I hope to, you know, continue to, to do them. I think they've been helpful to me and to, you know, for me, they've been helpful cause I get to, I get, I have fun just, um, exploring Burning Man through someone else's, um, you know, experience. And then I know it's nostalgic for the person who's telling the story and then it's eye opening to people who are listening to it. So it's been, um, I've been enjoying it. And so have we, and, and thank you for, for finding the strength and the power to step into this role and, 
and place because I mean the the exponential effects of the work you're doing are you know are continuing to happen on a daily basis and I can attest to the idea that Burning Man gave me the strength and confidence to step into certain areas of my work and personal life and I think that the fact that you're communicating that to a segment of the culture and population that might not otherwise be exposed to it is like just incredible work and it's really evidenced in the stories that your guests tell because like you know no two are alike and everybody's experience is very real and very human and mm -hmm. people are not afraid to bear their emotions and their fears and their apprehensions to you and then how they've worked through that or overcome them through you know on the pie and off the pie it's just really profound and i think that's a great place for us to wrap it up I hope that you've enjoyed uh, our dialogue as much as I have. It's an honor and a privilege to speak with you, Aaron. Um, we'll plug the site and the Instagram and all that on the podcast. And hopefully we can check in with one another down the road and continue the work. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. And thank you so much for your support. And I'm sure we'll, we'll be in touch for sure. I look forward to it. Well, you have a good burn week, whatever you choose to do with it. and uh, we'll. See you on the other side. I'll actually have a a, um, a gallery in the, I believe it's the, one of the platforms. I'll have a gallery. I'll share that information with you, so you should go check it out. Yeah, please do. We'll embed it on the on the homepage for the podcast, and I'll even put it on my own socials. So, yeah, let Perfect. us know. Sure. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Evan. Bye-bye. back upful life podcast wants to offer a deep bow of gratitude large up to ms erin douglas of the black burner project fascinating thought-provoking conversation with the travel photographer and three-time burner you can check her out on instagram black burner project also the black burner project website and of course she has a great interview print interview with burningman.org so you can google that as well and we look forward to hearing more from ms douglas and her black burner project and on a uh, somber note i wanted to just say a prayer and be heard uh, for 
Mr. James Orock, great thinker, trusted, valued, beloved member of uh, several Burning Man camps and communities, as well as festival nation, if you will, or planet for that matter. Just a beloved uh, writer, thinker, hardcore search team that's been mobilized and doing good work, but he's yet to be turned up. The authorities, f officials in the area are calling off their part of the search, but his his friends and family, headed up by uh, our dear friend AJ, uh, they're still looking for him, so sending love to James Orock, the Kiwi, wherever you are, my brother, you're loved, and we look forward to finding you. Sixth chamber of the Up for Life podcast, and it is my distinct pleasure to bring to you DJ Williams, who is an incendiary guitarist with his own project Shots Fired, and of course has been manning the lead guitar wing with Carl Denson's Tiny Universe, KDTU, for over a decade. And I've known DJ for some time, and consider him a friend and I've been a big fan of his musical contributions across the board for a long time as well. Now I've interviewed him for Live for Live Music and we intend to do a proper sit down in person for a lengthy career spanning conversation uh, down the road whenever it's safe to do so. But in the meantime I really wanted to catch up with him for his perspective on current events and the social and racial and cultural climate this summer 2020. Um, I checked in with him some weeks ago, middle or end of June, uh, in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and the country was literally ablaze and angry and demonstrating in the streets. And that has continued for the most part through this long hot summer and now California is on fire in a different way but people are still angry they're still marching just today in the aftermath of the Jacob Blake shooting in Wisconsin the NBA and Major League Baseball uh, teams are boycotting or striking if you will because uh, they've had it up to here 
and it is with that backdrop and that energy that I am producing this show uh, today towards the end of August and uh, DJ's words from mid-June are only more salient, more potent, more applicable today as they were just a few short weeks ago. Now, uh, I really trust DJ to uh, lay it all out there, and he did. He really reached deep into his uh, personal memories and broke down his experience as a black American from the stage, as a youth, traveling around, falling into the different music scenes in Richmond, Virginia, and then a whole lot of what he's experienced and was just willing to share. And as I mentioned a number of times on this podcast, these are not easy conversations to have. And, you know, it makes us all look within ourselves as we listen to some of the people who we've supported and cheered and loved and celebrated on the stage for years to bear some of their truths and to express how they feel and how they are living through uh, a reality that's entirely different than many of ours. And so with that, I want to offer a deep bow of gratitude to DJ Williams for the conversation, as well as Aaron Douglas earlier on this episode, Chris Littlefield before him, Kim Dawson before that, and all the listeners who have tuned in and uh, had similar thoughts, feelings, emotions attached to these difficult topics and just raw emotional memories that each of my guests has been willing to share. So as the God MC Rakim once said, times is hard on the boulevard, but it's because of people like DJ Williams and Aaron Douglas that uh, we're able to somehow conversate and navigate our way through the darkness and into the light and it is that energy and spirit with which I make this show so that said let's hear from my man my friend and an incredible musician guitarist and human being DJ Williams of Shots Fired and KDTU and we'll hear DJ's own song New Ammo with the tiny universe to take us into this conversation on the 36th chamber of the up full life podcast i'm your host b gets yes indeedy This is B. Getz with the Up Full Life Podcast. What's up, my man? How you feeling? Ah, uh, man, I'm pretty good. You know, I got to say I'm blessed and a really sunny day out here in Northern California. I'm happy to be talking to you. 
Yeah, man, always great to hear from you, man. Love catching up with you. Likewise, man. And I got to say, of course, I've been a fan of yours as an artist and a musician over a decade now. I was kind of doing the math before. And uh, oh, man, dude, appreciate that. Yeah, and, and proud to call you friend for at least more than half that time. And, you know, we've got, sure. we've got a lot of history. And, and of course, I want to talk about your career. And, and hopefully in the future, we'll sit down in person like we've planned uh, and, yeah, and really do the whole career thing. But crazy times right now. And, uh, and I just wanted to reach out to people I know in the music community and just hear some people's stories, their realities, uh, because there's a lot to be learned and gleaned in this moment in history. So thank you for making the time. Yeah, man, there's a, it's a very interesting time that we're living in. So it's always really nice to come bounce new ideas off of other people and trying to get other people's input just as a, as we're kind of getting to the term that we've heard a lot, the new normal, you know? Yeah, that is a term that's uh, bouncing around a lot. There's a lot of new terms, and we'll definitely like touch on just what the hell's happening. But one of the things I'm really stoked about is you just put out some really sweet new music. It's on Color Red. Yeah. Let's talk because I've been a fan of Shots Fired since you started dropping stuff. You know what, three four years ago. But you've really yeah, found your groove. What what is the newest release about? Who's on it? Um. So the newest release. Uh, we recorded it in Denver, and I've gotten to befriend a lot of really great musicians in that scene. That's just constantly been like on the upward draft right now. I guess I could say in the in the music world, in the jam world, and it's just like so. This shots fired. I originally started in LA. I moved to Denver about two and a half years ago, and it's been it's been really great to kind of transition the band from California to Colorado. So I've been working with uh, Dan Africano, who plays with Ghostlight. He used to play with um, Brown's um, John Brown's Body uh, back in the day. He's a great bass player. Uh, Neil Evans, the forever Neil Evans, not that still alive Neil Evans, uh, did drums for me on a couple tracks. Uh, Kawan Turner played drums on it. We've got uh, Joe Tadden from the New Master Sounds. Killed it on the organ on this record. Uh, Nick Gerlach on sax. Andre Molly on trumpet and my boy Scott Flynn on trombone from Elephant Wrecking Ball and Odessa. That's a hell of a lineup. Obviously, like yeah. you know, you've been <laughs> you've been like mixing and matching in different cities. I know you've you've got like the SoCal version that gave birth to this project. You've obviously got yep. your your hometown version, yeah, Bay Area yeah. version, hometown version in in Richmond, and of course, you know, the Denver is really is really the epicenter for so much music in our scene. Yeah. And, and you've lived there for a time. I know you're taking some time away, and we'll get to that. But uh, just uh, talk just a little bit about, you know, moving to Denver and sort of uh, becoming immersed in that just pre-COVID. Like, what was the scene, the culture as a musician, and just, like, living there? Uh, I mean, it was, for me, it was a really easy transition because I've been doing shows in Denver for probably a little over a decade. And it was one of those places, every time we went there for a show, I would like be like, man, this would actually be a really dope place to live and kind of like cultivate a, a new scene here. Just kind of jump into the scene that's already been there because Denver is one of those towns that really, really supports live music. Like you can have six sold out shows, including Red Rocks with people with multiple tickets to go to each show like in one night and that's almost unheard of 
in any other city in the U.S. So it's like, it was really interesting to like see all these people coming in, like some of the lettuce guys, a lot of the lettuce guys live there now. Like Dice lived down the street from me and I'd run into Shemin's, I'd run into like Borum, I'd run into uh, Benny Bloom just moved there. And it's like, there's kind of this influx of all these great musicians from New York, from Austin, from New Orleans who are all coming into Denver, it seemed simultaneously. And it was done. It was doing nothing but feeding an already great community and making a better one. And even when we had gigs there, like these other musicians you would see at your shows, there's, there's a really great support community amongst musicians as well, which I really love to see. So it was just really easy to like, I don't know, just jump in and kind of pick up from right when I left off of, because I was used to that from growing up in Richmond, Virginia. It was just that kind of same kind of community. So it just felt right. Did you did you notice that that had any kind of uh, impact moving there and immersing yourself like that on your writing on your playing? Did did you did you notice like maybe you were more prolific because of your surroundings? Um, yeah, I mean that's that's definitely with anywhere though. Like anywhere where I'm, I'm surrounded by like like minded musicians, especially musicians that kind of give you that with open arms mentality. It definitely comes out in the writing and. It almost makes our job a lot easier. Yeah, I've just noticed whether, you know, a lot of the cats you mentioned that moved there, and of course, Eddie Roberts, who was here in the Bay for a long time, uh, is major in Denver, and and everybody together there is just creating, producing such, you know, high art, and you're a big part of that. So I just kind of wanted to take a moment before we get into more serious topics to just give you an opportunity to, to tell people where can they hear you know, the DJ Williams stuff, the, sh- the shots fired. Where's the best place to get the newest shit? Um, so right now we are only on, we're pretty much on all the streaming platforms. And I kind of wanted to get away from that model of dropping a record and almost kind of giving everyone too much to eat because I really wanted each, each song to be given the right amount of attention that I thought it deserved. So we had this idea of, putting out one track a month um, until the record comes out. That's why I call this record The Samurai, The Cowboy, The Seductress, The Villain. So I wrote these songs towards these characters, and each um, song is supposed to kind of paint a picture of who these characters are. So last month we put out The Samurai, and The Samurai song was called Iron Fist, and it was kind of like this kind of kind of fight movie, kind of soundtracky. The whole thing's kind of a cinematic vibe. And the one that we put out this month, Sunset Trails, is the track for the cowboy. And then next month, we're going to put out the track for the seductress. And then in August, we're going to put out the track for the villain and also release the rest of the record on Color Red. Word. Yeah, man. Yeah. I love that idea of the rollout. I really love the imagery that came like Mike Tallman stuff for that first Iron Fist track. Was Yeah, great. yeah. He, he crushed it really money and uh, your your thing and color red's a nice fit so i'm stoked that's happening and we'll definitely be sure to play some of that music on this podcast awesome. and and let folks and i'll try to get someone live for live music i know they've been real supportive already so sure. we definitely want to you know make sure that people get an opportunity to hear the music because you know the music comes from the struggle the whether it's it's oh, sure. relative to what's happening right now or your whole life you know, or any artist's life. And I talked about that with actually with Mike's wife in an interview earlier with just how in the music is the struggle and having lived it, there's just a tangible sort of uh, factor or quotient, I should say intangible quotient that's just in there. 
and and a lot of people of color you know are are, are in essence like being being scrubbed from the uh from the music and from the culture and therefore like we get watered down versions of of music that black people are basically invented and for sure i'm trying to get people of color in my network on the show and just in general to to give them an opportunity not to lecture anyone but to just talk about their black american experience how it comes out yeah. in their music and uh how can we learn because you know jam cruise jazz fest a lot of the stuff we do you know is mostly white audiences and yeah. a lot of times it's white folks on stage but it's almost always music rooted in black culture. Black music is American history. So black I, culture is American history. Absolutely, man. And, and this has been a reckoning for a lot of people, and this isn't a, a conversation that's easy to have. So I want to say before we get into it that I appreciate you being willing to take it there. And I'm learning. Man, I'm, I'm, going, I'm not in a place where I could say I'm free of inherent biases or anything like that. So I'm doing this as much for myself and for my own process as for other people to hear just your story and then like how we can uh, be allies and, and just by yeah. understanding and listening and talking about it. So you mentioned you're back in Richmond and uh, I am. How did you end up back in Virginia? I understand it was relative to the, the music industry shutdown, right? Um, yeah, so in the beginning of everything kind of shutting down, it was like mid-March, I was still in uh, downtown Denver, and I had, a, I had a place there, and I pretty much was just living off savings, and I got denied the regular unemployment. I got a couple grant checks, and I got some funding from uh, some kind of like some artist grants from the state of Colorado, which I didn't even know existed. But I thought it was beautiful when I did my research and found out about it. But other than that, it was just, I was living out of my means and really needed to make a hard choice of giving up my place and coming back to my hometown of Richmond where the cost of living is pretty much half of what it is to be in Colorado. And I decided to just go ahead and do it. Cause like Denver's not going anywhere and I can always go back. My stuff, my stuff is still there. And I'm lucky that I was actually able to have this decision or this, um, or this chance to come back to my hometown. And it's, it's always open arms here for me. So it was, it was an easy decision to make. And you have an amazing uh, music community back there in sure. RBA that's going to just, yeah. you know, when it's and time. Amazing, yep. And an amazing lady as well, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that too. And that's a big part of it. Partnership is huge in these times. Uh, yeah, it was pretty much a straight shot. I, like, we made two stops. Uh, stopped in uh, Kansas City and I stopped in Charleston, West Virginia, and then just pretty much trucked it 1,500 miles in like two and a half days. Right on, right on. Well, I'm glad that you're back there in the bosom of people that love you with a good woman sure. and, and good friends and your family, of yeah, course. Man. Talk to the folks a little bit about what was it like growing up in, obviously, Virginia has a very troubling history with racism and confederacy. Oh, for and stuff. sure, man. I got here in 1988. I was like seven years old when we moved to Virginia. But I'm going to back up a little bit more because my entry coming back into the States as a black American was a lot different than some of my peers were. Because I was born in Jersey and then immediately moved to Monrovia, Liberia, where my mother is from and my father is from 
Sierra Leone, which is uh, a town called Freetown in Sierra Leone, and they're both bordering countries on the west coast of Africa. And um, my father was in the diamond business, so he traveled a lot, and I was actually afforded the pleasure of going to, being able to travel out of the world because of his job. So through my when I was a baby until I was like four or five, we're living in Africa. And then I moved to uh, London and my older sister was born in Germany. So I actually did a stint in Hamburg, Germany for a while. But my mother wanted us to start school in London. So I started school in London up until about the second or third grade. And then we decided to come back to the States. And that's when my parents decided on Virginia. I don't know why, but, I'm sure there was a conversation there that I wasn't privy to, but that's where they decided. And it was a really rough transition because for like in my mind as a seven-year-old, it was like, oh, we're going to this place where I just think, well, the cowboy movies are from. And like, we're going to the deep South and why the hell are we going here? But I never really questioned it because my parents were generally smart, educated people. So you kind of just trust the knowledge. So I got here and I immediately realized that I didn't have the same background as a lot of other black Americans did. So I, I ended up having to learn to put on different masks. And that's because it's almost like I was too educated for the white kids, but I was also not black enough for the black kids. So it was, it was always this like juggling game of where do I fit in this place, in this place, Virginia, as this kid who's been probably more exposed to a lot of the world than like a lot of my peers has. So I kind of approached it in this way of wearing different masks. And I still do it to this day, like depending on what situation I'm in. And it was I have a funny story. Like I remember like my first year of school, we had to talk about get up in front of the class and talk about what we did over the summer. And I was like, I got up and I was like, oh, we went on safari and like we did this thing. And I was in London and I thought it's like beer garden in Germany. It was awesome. And the teacher just kind of like nodded her head and the teacher called my mother that evening and told my mom that I had a very wild imagination and that those things probably didn't happen. And I'm sure my mother has an honest explanation of why I think I did all these things. And so my mom and my mom distinctly calling me into the room and straight up cussed my teacher out, like in front of me, like cussed her out for assuming that this young black kid could never have those experiences. And, Pretty much I told her off in front of me. I remember going back to school and that teacher was so nice to me for the rest of the year. And it kind of really, it's still ingrained in my mind, like how difficult that probably was for my mom to do. But like, also, why would this teacher automatically label me as a liar? And this is like, that was my intro to public school in Virginia. Damn. Wow. And 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 you just like... You arrive and you're this, in essence, like a worldly young man. And, yeah, and, and this, yeah, this is in the 80s, and I have some like teacher who's probably never, never left Virginia her whole life, right. calling me a liar. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, did you find yourself, uh, were you able to sort of find your groove in the black community as a kid, or were you? Cause... I've always been a very adaptive person, even as a kid. And I just, I learned, I have to learn things really quickly, but I eventually I, I found my way. And when did, and when did you start really like deep diving into music and, and what was some of the music that spoke to you, to your personal experience? Um, so I started 
classical piano when I was four years old. I have two other sisters, and at four years old, in our family, you had to pick um, an instrument to play. I think pretty much we both, we all did piano. I think maybe my older sister did piano and violin. I studied classical and then jazz piano for almost 10 years, and then I didn't pick up guitar until later in my life, but music was always kind of something that was, I, I took a knack to very quickly and very early, and um, I remember I got a drum set for like my 12th birthday, and that was a huge part of my life, and it was also kind of like my ticket into social circles, and whether it was elementary school, middle school, high school, it actually gave me something to... I don't know, I just kind of impress people with, and I kind of could be in different social circles because of this talent that I had, I guess you can say. Yeah, man, I, I was always kind of curious, because I knew you grew up in, in Richmond, but I was unaware of how well-traveled and stuff you were before you arrived there. And uh, I, yeah. noticed, I noticed, like, uh, with regard to, like, our scene, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's a really white scene, and because of the trickle down and the maybe the lack of culturing the next generation like not everybody really knows that the roots of a lot of the music that you know people see on jam cruise and people see you know on the festival circuit whatever is is oh, yeah. versions of black music so being that you are in our scene and and you know vibrant contributor and artist in the culture which you know I write about and host this show about and such I'm curious, like, did you, did you immediately sort of gravitate to sort of this improvisational jazz funk jam scene, or was there ever a period of time where you were, you know, uh, hanging out in another scene or making music in a, a scene that wasn't this one? Because, I mean, I would even put DJ Williams' project, which is really the first thing I ever heard from you, still into this kind yeah. of w world I'm talking about. Was there ever a yeah. DJ Williams that, that existed in another scene there? Um, yeah, man, like, I was, I was a drummer for a hardcore band called Defcon 1 in high school, and that was my shit back then. Like, I was, I loved, like, Seven Dust, and I loved Tool, and I was, like, avidly, like, listening to, like, Pantera, and it was, it was an interesting time of my life, I guess I could say. Like, I remember, like, we scored that same band, our, I guess our high school was doing the play Beowulf, and they let us score, um the music and it's like hardcore band and it was like so much fun. And then, I mean, I was always had like an expansive palette of music that I listened to. I love classical and jazz, of course, but also like a huge hip hop kid. Like I grew up through the era of like Tribe Called Quest and Arrested Development and Dig World Planets. Like that shit was like still high on my list. And then friends started introducing me to like fish. And like in the beginning, I didn't quite get it, but they were like, Oh, we should like check this stuff out. And I kind of saw, those early begins of fish when I could hear like traces of like how it was very composed, like a Rachmaninoff tune. Like, I remember hearing like you enjoy myself and being like, dude, this is like really intricate music. So I started to like go down that wormhole of like checking out fish, which connecting you to like Mo and like Keller Williams and like started to see, hear more of this stuff in the kind of like in the jam band world. And the deeper I dug, then I started to find bands like Modesky, Martin and Wood who would take jazz and like, but kind of not have any rules with it. I mean, it was just kind of jazz natural anyway. What they were doing like in this whole other way, which connected me to Schofield. And I've always been loving to connect the dots when it comes to music and who's inspired by who. And I think that's something that's been lost with a lot of 
the like the white jam kids and the scene today, like we were talking about, they don't really know the connection of this music. And I think it's not just in the jam scene, it's like a lot of younger musicians don't as excitedly as I used to kind of connect the dots. Like I remember laying a bunch of records out and reading all the liner notes and seeing like, oh, this is the drummer from this record. And they also drummed on this thing who also produced this record. And like that excited me. And that was kind of I think what's lost with not having liner notes on Spotify, like, and I just always wonder why they never did that, which kind of upsets me because there's all these people who don't get credit, but it's also kind of the fans that have seen how we're all connected, you know? Yeah, that's an important part of it. I, I couldn't agree yeah. more with the connectivity, and that helps, like, educate. And, and you bring up, like, Tribe Called Quest and Diggable Planets, Arrested Development. Mm-hmm. That, that was really, you know, how I was first really in any way, turned on to or educated about the realities of black Americans and culture. And, and I even yeah. found my way into the jazz world and the funk world through hip-hop samples. So it's interesting how music can teach and, and, and how it just, in essence, you know, it exposes people like you and me to just other realities that maybe we wouldn't be tuned to otherwise. And And that made me, like, dive all the way into black culture and music, and it's how I you know, grow so mm-hmm. fond of, of Carl Denson's tiny universe, because in this world, cause I, you know, I grew up seeing the dead. I love the dead. They're still my favorite band and I've seen fish, you know, a lot. That said, yeah, like you're big, you're big Jamiroquai fan too, aren't you? I love Jamiroquai. Yeah, all, of yeah. course. But it was, it was in 2000 when I saw Carl, I, I had seen the gray boys before that, but I saw the tiny universe at jazz fest a few times and, you know, I'd already become pretty hardcore into D'Angelo, and it was like in this world of really white bread funk that I loved. <laughs> I loved. Yeah. This was a really black band playing black music unapologetically, jam enough to satiate like the the hippie kids. But it's really, oh, yeah. really, really black music. And then when you stepped into the role with them, is is how I really got tuned into who you are as a player and, and a person, and of course a friend. I'm curious, because yeah. this is a weird one, but what's it like to get up at the Jam Cruises or the High Sierra Festivals, you know, these exceedingly white audiences with not necessarily understanding the heritage or the connect the dots that we mentioned, and you get up there and you're performing, you know, like I said, unapologetically black music. Uh, I Just take me through that, if, if you wouldn't mind, because it's got to be a little bit of a disconnect there and like how you navigate through that, because you never know it from the performance. Yeah, and like, and in all honesty, it, there's no disconnect for me at all. Like, I get up and perform music in front of anybody, and I'm there with one purpose, is to do what I do to the best of my ability and to play as the best version of me and convey this emotion to whoever is in front of me. And I'm not going to say that I don't see color. I obviously see color, but that's not what's on my mind at that time at all. Word. Yeah. I mean, I've always kind of wondered that just because, you know, it, it just, it was obvious to me that, you know, that, yeah. Just in general. I would say that I, I would say that I notice it more when I'm not playing. If I'm in the crowd in a, in a sea of white people who are watching something else, I might I might give it a little bit more thought. But when I'm on stage, it's not. It's completely not on my mind at all. Well, I mean, that's it, you wouldn't think so by looking, but I've often asked myself because I've seen the Tiny Universe so many times in so many of those environments. Yeah. And you know, 
I'm a white guy. It's not like I can make any judgments here. I'm just like every other white person yeah. in the audience. I just, you yeah. know, I try to have an appreciation. That's why we're talking about this stuff for for where it came from. You know, like we listened to yeah. that most deaf song from back in the day, rock and roll, where he's just letting you know, like it all comes from black culture. And and I just think you're such an important member of of our community, and you you contribute so much to different projects and stuff that it's. I wanted to give an opportunity for you to tell like your story in that yeah. regard and, and how it affects you. And it sounds like it really doesn't affect you. Do you have instances? If, in if, any, if, um, if anything, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see, like the, the power of what we do, bringing people of all walks of life together. It's almost the complete opposite of the craziness that's going on today. And it kind of has been like that even during the civil rights movement in the sixties, like you would, you could still go to a jazz club in Harlem or something. And there would be like beatniks on white people and black people like right. they're in a smoky room because that's the power of what we do. It, it brings people together. And for that moment, for that 90 minutes, for that two hour show, no one's thinking about the color of anybody's skin. And that's the power that just shows the power behind what we have and what we have as musicians. It does, man. And it's, a gift. it's a true gift. It is a gift. And it's a gift that you're able to exist in essence above the madness or outside of it and just connect with the performance and the power of the music yeah. and leave, you know, the bullshit behind. But then it, that makes me want to ask you kind of another hard question. If, if, the the fact that our audience is is collectively like would probably say a statement like I don't see color I don't notice it's music I just love to groove. Um, in light of everything that that's happening now, like with the awakening and the, and people struggling to come to terms with the, how deeply rooted the racism and everywhere is, should our music scene be a sanctuary away from that where we can just lose ourselves in the music? And, and, and not necessarily like get dragged down with that dark, evil energy, or is it incumbent upon us to, do we got to unpack our fucking suitcases too, because it's reckoning time sanctuary uh, or, or talk about it. I think it's a place for both. And I think it should come down to the individual. I mean, that's the beauty about being an American is that we get to choose, right? Of course. Yeah, so I think if you're more comfortable just having this space to let go and not want to do anything, by all means, do it. But if you want to use this thing as a platform to really try to bring some things out, and by all means, do that too. I don't think it. I think it should be broken down to just one or the other, you know, because it's going to be different for everybody on the individual level. Definitely, definitely. It's just it's a it's a conversation you hear on, on a lot of levels. Like the other day, yeah. Kunj made a post of, about how he's seeing a lot of musicians being told like, Hey, like shut up and sing. Uh, or like, all that. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so that's kind yeah. of, in essence, if we're just going to like say, you know what? Fuck the bullshit. Let's jam. That's cool. But you know, to me, that just feels like we've been doing that a long time. Like I've yeah. been doing that a long time. I've been looking the other way. I've been like reaping the benefits, building my whole like sense of self from fashion to music yeah. to fucking if how anything, I think people should know that all this music has come from this suffering and all this. If you want to, people always say that I want the musicians talking politics. It's like, well, what do you think 
ninety percent of this fucking music came from. You know, it's like <laughs> you right. don't get one without the other. Yeah, and I think that's an essential part of it is that we they people have been getting one without the other for a while now. Yeah. There, there's been a lack of consciousness, even in like hip hop. You know, that's just like the 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 conscious side of hip hop or the the. the learning, understanding, the ghetto CNN, as Chuck D once famously said, has been replaced yeah. with just, you know, whatever they're playing now. Is, is There's not a lot of messaging there. You know, there's the earth gangs out there. But my point is, there's a lot of, of people asleep at the wheel. And, and I think that's to be said for, for our music scene. People love to get fucked up and dance, and that's great and all. Mm-hmm. But there's a, it's just, look outside, you know, it's, it's, it's ugly and and I it feel- is, man. And, like, one of my main things that I've been with the whole Black Lives Matter thing, to me, it's it's not just Black Lives Matter, but it's also, it's it's about liberation, too, man. It's like we finally, we keep talking about it, we keep talking about it, but we're not, we haven't really been doing anything, and young people haven't really been very proactive. So let's always keep the conversation going. We don't always have to agree, but let's keep the conversation going in a respectful manner always. And I think this is kind of a really great stepping stone in that direction. How far do we take it? Do you, do you believe that we should say, like, not buy music equipment from certain brands that, say, contribute to the current administration or not play certain venues where there's been documented uh, incidences of, of racism or prejudice? Yeah, or- I mean, like, like everyone's been saying, there's many lanes. So you don't have to be in all the lanes. Pick a lane and let's, and let's do it, but like, let's keep moving forward. All those things you said, I'm all, I'm all for it. Word. Yeah, I'm just trying to, so, yeah, you know, if you, if you can, figure if you out ways. Part in just one lane, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, for some people, it's writing a song, and for some people, it's talking yeah. to their racist uncle. I mean, of course, there's a million lanes. I guess, yeah. you know, and I don't want to be, I, like I said, I have my own reckoning to do, just because I love hip-hop and black music and can talk to you about D'Angelo for seven hours, doesn't mean that, right. like, I'm, I'm not, I don't have inherently taught and learned biases myself and the only way that i'm unpacking them and understanding them is by like confronting them and the only way i'm doing that is by like really walking right into the mac truck so that's why i'm asking hard questions that's why i'm talking to people of color in my network because i don't have the answers and it's not up to you to tell us what to do i just want to hear your stories and your truths because I'm tired of people looking the other way, myself included. Well, this this is definitely a great path to moving forward, man. Like just having open conversations like these and letting other people in on it and spreading it as far as wide we can and just being heard, you know? It's like that's all that we ever want is just to be heard. Yeah, and that's what I, I'm honored and privileged to have a platform where people might be able to hear you and others, and it's not patronizing, like, I was going to have you, we've tried to do this podcast before all this out, this stuff, so it's not like I'm having oh, yeah. you on just because of that, but uh, no um, I am also realizing that, hey, like, I could sit down and break down another live album, or we could talk about some shit that really matters, you know? And Yeah, and right now is the time to talk about that shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, and, and I'll finish it off because I mentioned D'Angelo, and, uh, you know, it's like when I was locked up is when Black Messiah came out. And uh, yeah. so I, I, I didn't get to really listen to it till after the initial release. And then um, I had, you know, a tough time kind of cracking it for a while. 
But after, yeah. over time, now I love it, you know. But the other day, like when I say the other day, maybe a month ago, you know, after the George Floyd murder, while shit was really yeah, getting... What was heavy, this, like 2011? 2015 is when it right. came out. Yeah, that's right, yeah. He came back in 2011 on the Mary J. Blige tour, correct? But but yeah. the album dropped in 2015, and I just didn't get to hear it until you know close to a year after it came out. The point being is like I I have a real emotional relationship, obviously, with D'Angelo, as do you. We, we talked about that, and I think we'll talk about it in depth. Sure. That's, uh, that's, that's the next podcast, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I hear a lot of that. I hear that in just about anything you do, but especially uh, his, his mother, his mother and my mother are like flesh buddies too, man. It's kind of funny. Oh, that's classic, man. Yeah. When we do the yeah. in-person, like full breakdown, we talk about your journey and your misadventure overseas and all that. We'll do like yeah, a solid 15, 20 minutes about D'Angelo on that podcast. Cool. But I'm I just wanted down. to say the charade this time, this, this month, um, the, the, the song, the charade, because that's really what prompted him to finally put out the album and, you know, oh, Fer yeah. Ferguson and everything. And I just wanted to All say that... It was a chance to talk. Yes. It, yeah, it's it's brought me to man. tears. Like, I, I liked the song already a lot. But this yeah. this month, it digs so deep. So, yeah, give go back to it sometime. And I know you listen to it anyway, but the shit I'm is going, so... I'm actually going to do it as soon as we're done with this. Word. I, I mean, yeah, because I really want to dig deep into the lyrics again, too. Yeah, man, and uh, we'll we'll definitely get into some D'Angelo down the road when we when we have this podcast in person and we can hear about your whole career and all the hardcore bands from back in the day and everything yeah, that got you up through through here. But I am really, honestly, just so grateful that you were open to talking about this shit and telling people about your life and. And hey, I, mean, I appreciate you uh, thinking of me and having me on here to have your voice on your show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Well, we'll do it again. In the meantime, put on the charade and, you know, hug your fam. And please keep us posted. All the music. You know what I mean? You know, I'm always, well, man. you know, your manager, Benji, is always up. You know, hey, check this out. He's He keeps me posted <laughs> what you're doing. And uh, yeah, man. we'll always be supporting, you know, whether it's with Shots Fire, Tiny Universe, whatever you're doing. Oh, yeah. All right, man. Well, stay safe, right, stay well, healthy. You too, man. You too, man. We'll be in touch. Sounds good, my brother. say thank you to my man DJ Williams for that thoughtful and thought-provoking conversation. Look forward to sitting down with him one-on-one -on -one and really chopping it up about some shared, harrowing, parallel life experiences that 
we both went through and also just hear uh, the nuance and the details and the rabbit holes about his musical and personal journey. But that was just a fascinating uh, walk down memory lane for him with his youthful uh, excursions and adolescent exuberance and pathway to music, geography, and his black American story. Thanks, DJ, and much love. Check out Shots Fired on Color Red Music, djwilliamsmusic.com. And you're hearing After Laughter by Wendy Renee. Of course, those of you paying attention will remember this as the sample for Wu-Tang Clan Tears. So uh, since this is the 36th chamber of the Up Full Life podcast, before we get into the Vibe Junkie Jam, I just wanted to hit you with a little Wendy Renee after laughter. But then we're also going to switch him up. And you're going to get a little Wu-Tang after laughter. Tears. So let me switch it over here by uh, toggling. And we're going to get into this Wu-Tang Clan Tears. There it is. Now, yeah, this is a seminal album. And it's a real... uh, important piece of hip-hop history so I'd be remiss if I didn't play a little nugget or two from the seminal debut of the Wu-Tang Clan 1993 and uh, just let it ride for a sec here and then we'll get into the Vibe Junkie Jam introduction So with that, we're going to get into the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week, which is a bit of a departure from what we're hearing right now. Uh, We've been talking a lot about Burning Man, Black Rock City, and the Playa. And we talked to Aaron Douglas, a Black Burner Project, about the Black experience on the Playa. And like her, I had a definitive, life-affirming, and transformative uh, experience and journey when I first ventured to Black Rock City in 2013. And uh, there's one song that is kind of like my Burning Man theme song. I heard it several times uh, that first burn, different DJs, just perfect moments in time when the stars or sun or moon aligned with a certain state of mind, and it's hard to uh, hard to really think about Burning Man and not hear Dusted Compass by the Human Experience, the Future Primitive Remix. It is a definitive soundtrack to burning for this guy and is an emotional quilt if you will that connects me with so many of my dearest friends uh, who have each experienced burning man in their own uh, colorful and beautiful and existential idiosyncratic way 
And I'm talking about the homies from back east and my people from the spirit of Swanee and even uh, my virgin burn camp uh, be here now. So in a nutshell, since we're celebrating the burn that would have been and I hope a lot of you have checked out or checking out the virtual Burning Man and Infinite Playa and all that cool shit that the org is doing. Uh, but to wrap it up for the Vibe Junkie Jam on this 36 chamber of the Up For Life podcast, we're going to go with Dusted Compass, The Human Experience, David Block, another dear friend we hope to have on the show one day soon-ish. And it'll be the Future Primitive Remix. And with that, we're going to send you off. Sayonara. Wubba, wubba, wubba. Goodbye. Job bless. And we'll see you next time on the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. Yes, indeedy.
minutes to ourselves. 